This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. I acknowledge that I broadcast each and every week on the stolen, unceded lands of the Kulin Nation. I pay respects to elders past and present and extend that to any First Nations people listening this afternoon. Always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Coming up on the show today, got some great guests as always. In about 10 minutes, I'll be joined by excellent journalist, broadcaster, documentary maker, wearer of many hats, Daniel Browning, to talk about Seasons in Black Box. It is a multi-part sound work that explores the integral role of plants in the Kulin seasonal calendar. It is presented by Outer Urban Projects and the Royal Botanic Botanical Gardens as part of Melbourne Design Week. I'm very excited to hear more about that. And joining me a little bit later on, I have poet Ali Elizadeh to discuss his brand new poetry book called Towards the End. It's out through Giramondo. All that, a bunch of music and more. I do hope you can stay with me. You're listening to Triple R in the Glass House for another Wednesday afternoon. And I'm so stoked because I have my first guest joining me in studio. Seasons is a multi-part sound work that explores the integral role of plants in the cool and seasonal calendar. Through the time-honoured practice of deep listening, Seasons invites audiences to experience climactic and seasonal variation, less as a weather event and more as a cultural phenomenon. It's presented in Black Box and Season is curated by Bunjalung radio broadcaster, journalist, and documentary maker Daniel Browning. Thank you so much for your time this afternoon. It's a, um, it's a pleasure to be here in the glass house, actually, considering we're talking about seasons and plants. Uh, it's great very to be fitting. at the glass house, glass house yeah. <laughs> um, so, Daniel, how did this project first come, come about? It's a, kind of been 18 months, I guess, in the kind of gestation. But, yeah, I was approached by Urban Theatre Projects, Western Sydney uh, Performing Arts Company, to curate sound for them in this structure called the Black Box. And then the Royal Botanic Gardens kind of approached, um, heard the first program of sound that I curated up in Sydney and then decided they wanted to bring it to Melbourne. So this is the first iteration outside of um, Greater Western Sydney, a greater, the Greater Sydney metropolitan area um, of this um, sound experience. I should say the black box is, is as it says, a box um, and it's this idea of kind of public listening. I mean, we do, we listen all the time. That's what we do uh, on the radio. <laughs> um, but this is a kind of focused, um, concentrated, deep listening. And I, I guess as blackfellas, we talk about how we communicate with each other and listening, not just to, you know, what comes out of what we say verbally, but there's a whole lot of other communications that we have as human beings but we also listen to country. Yeah. And what I wanted to do with this piece is to talk about like um, plants, animals, uh, and the, the kind of distinctive um, seasonal variation that you have across Coolant Territory, and that's, you know, Melbourne and surrounds, um, and then deep into central Victoria. There's so many seasons. I lived here for five years uh, from 2009 until about 2014. So I experienced what it was like to live here seasonally. And I actually come from a very hot place, um, subtropical place, where you might experience two or three seasons. Um, and blackfellas, yeah, we, we do have seasonal calendars, calendars which far outstrip just, you know, the simple four seasons that um, we have in the West. Mm. 
I'm interested, you say deep listening. What does that, um, you know, you say listening to country. What does that mean for you? Well, I mean, when I go home to where I come from, far north coast of New South Wales, you know, I'm listening to the kind of long drone, the timbre of the ocean and what that sound means. It's it's a cushioning sound. It's a sound that's welcoming. It's a sound that kind of puts me to sleep. So I'm also, when I come to Melbourne, listening to the sounds of the birds, listening to when also the absence of birds, and particularly after the horrific kind of bushfire season that we've had and the choking um, kind of skies, we should really be focused on what's happening in our environment, not just in the cities. Um, obviously in the country we're much closer to, to you know, to, to what you might refer to as climate change. I've no d- doubt that that's happening, but we got to see that in the cities and it was writ large across the skies. In Sydney, you know, in Melbourne, in Brisbane, I travelled across th- those three places uh, during the bushfire season and experienced the same kind of choking, um, kind of, yeah, that kind of choking atmosphere. So this project kind of unfurled in that, um, in that kind of environmental drama. Mm-hmm. So, you know, these things do come up. It's all about climatic variation. But everyone I spoke to um, in the project had something to say about this kind of new experience of the seasons and how these seasons, the seasons we, we knew, aren't really kind of unfolding in quite the same way. And I think we've had, you know, the Australia Institute just very recently said that, you know, summer is much longer, sometimes a month longer um, than is usual. So... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's very much a, a kind of a, a subtext of, of this work is that kind of, uh, you know, kind of climatic change. Mm. And can you tell us more about the call-in seasons and, you know, what they are and, and yeah, what they look like? They're really complex. They're highly nuanced. Um, a lot of work's been done um, to try and map how people moved across country seasonally um, and they've even they've even created a cycle of seasons um, based on what we know culturally what people did. So, for, for instance, there's a and this is kind of this is cooler knowledge, and I'm not a cooler person, but I can tell you, I can say that what I heard from the people I spoke to, who are all cooler people, um, from this you know greater greater Melbourne area, was that around the kind of eel season, um, there was a a whole kind of series of f- cultural events that happened um, around Birarang, around the river, River of Mist. So when those eels were running, that's when people got together. They had their meetings um, and they gathered and did all these kind of cultural things around the seasons. When the kangaroo apple um, starts to flower uh, in the higher parts of Kulin Territory, um, the flowers are worn by women as garlands and there's things that happen seasonally according to according to the flowering of that particular flower. Um, yeah, just it's it's so highly detailed, and I don't want to give it all away because it's it's very much their knowledge, and it's not something that I I can speak for. Certainly, in curating the voices, I've I've let them speak, and my approach has always been has always been to my work um, one of open mic. Mm. I'm just one black fella from one part of the country. And I, I have no, you know, authority to speak on on anyone's behalf. Only my own. Um, so the open mic approach is one where you you basically say, "This is I'm talking. We're talking about the seasons. What do you want to tell me mm. about the seasons?" 
I'm interested, um, you know, you have some amazing artists that have contributed to this project. Um, Isabel Murphy-Walsh, Auntie Joy Murphy, Just, uh, Justice Nelson. Can you tell us a little bit about your, your process of, of curation? I was very lucky to be supported in this project um, by a you know, Melbourne-based cultural producer, Genevieve Greaves, who mm-hmm. you know, has had very long... Con- you know, you, everyone knows Genevieve <laughs> Greaves. Um, so she's done some extraordinary work at, you know, at, when she was at Museum uh, Victoria, at Melbourne Museum, um, in terms of you know, cultural work with you know, Victorian communities, Victorian mobs. And so she helped me... Ide- we, we identified together some of those people who would be who had talked about the seasons before and for whom this was important knowledge um, to sh- kind of share. I mean, it's important also to say that there's knowledge that you can share and there's knowledge that you can't. Um, but what I found in talking about the seasons is, I mean, I'm an oral historian as well as much as anything else. I'm interested in what people's stories are. And it doesn't matter where they happen, what at what point in the past or in the, or in the future, um, the, a lot of the stories are personal. A lot of the stories are. This is what this is my memory of when those eels started to run. And another interesting story that came out when talking to Mandy Mandy um, Mandy Nicholson, who's a, a Woiwurrung language specialist from you know, the Wurundjeri Willem. Um, Mandy talked about how there's you know two creeks. I think William Creek and Bouverie Creek, which run kind of under what basically is Melbourne University. And we thought those creek, I thought those creeks had, had been blocked off and that they'd dried up and that the eels didn't run. But apparently you can see in the grates um, at Melbourne University, these eels, they're, they're precious. They're special. They're good food. They're um, precious to all the, all the coolant. Um, when they start to run, you can actually still see them um, running through the grates, so cool. um, those two creeks. So it's also about what's underneath us. You know, we think of concrete and, you know, and buildings but blackfellas see something different and I can't speak for all of us but I know that when I go home I can see my country because it hasn't been built up but I know that for many of the people I spoke to they see country around them all the time and it's 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 a, it's a sense of this is my country and they are they're all you know TOs they're all traditional owners of this country and I've got a real sense of where they kind of what they see when they look at say Melbourne when they look at these streets, they see the water running underneath. You know, they see those those creeks that we can't see, and the creeks that were deliberately closed off. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a there's a lot of poetry and a lot of metaphor in this in this work, and yeah, I have to pay tribute to to all of the artists. They're extraordinary individually and extraordinary collectively. And I'm the least important person in this process. It's really about that mic and and opening it up to to their voices. Black Box is about hearing our voices, um, hearing the voices of blackfellas. If you have just joined us, we are chatting to Daniel Browning all about Seasons, which is presented uh, in Black Box. And it is part of Melbourne Design Week. I know um, I'm interested in what the actual physical space is like and perhaps what it was like to collaborate. I know architect Kevin O'Brien worked on it. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, well, Kevin has his his Merriam Mir and Cowareg, so from the north of Australia. Um, He designed this box and laid it out according to, I guess, this kind of golden mean of um, the dimensions for a perfect conversation based on, I think, a building in... Somewhere in Scandinavia, the name of the the, uh, the name of which escapes me now, but basically it's a square on the outside, rectangular, 
Um, and on the inside, it's an egg shape. It's um, soundproofed in some ways, and it's constructed from this polyurethane material. So it's, it's vis- on the outside, it looks white, except when it's lit. And there are lights. That's one, one thing important to remember. It's not just a, a sound experience. It's, there's also a lighting experience to be had um, you know, when, you, when you come to see or hear uh, this program of sound. Um, yeah, so it's designed to have a, it's designed as a perfect place for a conversation. Um, and there are six speakers in this, in the box. Um, so you're hearing things very closely. You're hearing lip smacking. You're hearing, you know, there's long pauses, the editorial pauses. Mm. Um, and it's a really good way to kind of, I think, you know, I'm listening is what I do for a living so it's, for me, it's kind of natural. But to ask someone to come into a space and to sit for 50 minutes and to not really respond to that um, in any other way than physically, um, to not want to have a dialogue with that voice that you're hearing coming out of those speakers, it's a big ask. Um, I don't find it difficult, but I am I, aware that it is. it can be kind of a... For some people, it's strange to sit and to, to be still for 50 minutes. Um, but I encourage people to do it. Someone described this experience to me as soporific. So you kind of, you do, I have fallen asleep during, <laughs> I have fallen asleep while listening because I'm, I, in, I'm so relaxed and I'm very attached to the content. I'm attached to the voices. I'm attached to the people who are in this program of sound. But I still felt, and the music, I have to say, James Henry's done an extraordinary job of just coordinating and composing music around some very thin frameworks that I gave him according to the seasons. But yeah, it is a, it's a, it's a kind of lulling and a gentle unfolding of the story. You do wake up, you don't actually fall asleep, you just, yeah, mm. <laughs> I get that, I hear that. And I think that's really good for the soul to just. Just listen. We need to listen to each other more. And um, that's the one kind of thing about this project. It's, it's always about we need to listen at a, at a higher level and more deeply. Mm. I feel very biased because I also work in audio, but I really feel like there are few opportunities for collective listening in like this. And I think it's a really yeah, special thing to do to come together and just attend to what you're listening to. I think it's, yeah, it's really exciting and, and done mean, so rarely. And you could never describe it. I mean, I guess a theatre company commissioned this work and it is, you know, it's a project of urban theatre. Um, but it is, it's a th- and it's theatrical in some ways, but this idea of just sitting and listening and you're not seeing any movement. We have curated movement into previous iterations of the box. Um, but for me, it's fundamentally about that deep listening um, and getting people more into just that practice and it's an ethical practice of deep listening it's not just a you know tuning out and listening deeply and then not doing anything anything about it it's about listening and maybe going what is it that I need to do to be a better human being and I'm not saying you know this is it's not it's not it's not therapeutic it's it's actually about what do we all do um, as, as people who participate in culture, who create culture, um, all of us? What do we do um, to be part of this, the world that we inhabit? Um, what are the ideas that we need to kind of take further? How do we listen more attentively? And that's across, across the board. 
we have all these voices, all these megaphones, you know, this microphone is a megaphone. But how we use it is our choice. We can use it gently and we can use it um, not as a megaphone. We can use it as a way to reach people. Um, so just listening to that receiver and also not just always being the voice. I mean, I'm, never, I'm, not, in these, I'm not in this work at all except as the curator in deciding how it goes up. Um, their voices are what's important and they are the centre of this work. Um, so they're the ones that, that deserve all the credit. Mm. I'm interested before you said there was perhaps an iteration done in Sydney. What do you feel like you've learnt kind of bringing it to Coolin country and, and working with Coolin artists? It's always about that, that, that the contact that you have with the art. And I get quite, I get up close and personal with the people I speak to. And I, I work on this thesis that everything we say is important. Nothing's you know, irrelevant and every single word that you use, you should use it kind of thoughtfully and that's what they, every single person I speak to and I've spoken to a lot of blackfellas in over the four, this is the fourth um, project, this fourth iteration of the Black Box, um, two at Barangaroo on the western foreshore of Sydney Harbour, one at, at Blacktown in Western Sydney and now here in Coolin Country. Look, it's just about that listening and about, what they have to tell me and how little I know, actually. What I learn is I just don't, I don't know anything. And I, there's a lot of, there's so much stuff that I have to learn. And I would hope that, that the audience also goes, oh, wow, I didn't know that. Mm. Mm. It sounds like an incredible project and I'm really excited about it. I'm, I'm interested, you know, for people that are, that are coming along, what do you hope they get out of it? Just that deep listening. Yeah, I mean that and then there's also the content. There's also a lot to learn about the variations in the seasons and also about like language. Language is extremely important in these projects by which I mean, you know, the language, the first languages of the continent. So you'll hear like the variations across um, all the, the, the languages of the, of the Kulin and the subtlety in their in their language and the poetry in their language. They've all, there's already a word for where we sit today. There's already a word for the kind of temperature that we have outside. There's already a word for the kind of colour of the sky today. There's a word for the colour of the trees. The Kulin mob have already inscribed the country with their knowledge and it's just about kind of, kind of just, you know, opening our eyes and opening our ears most importantly um, to all that language and all that culture and all that knowledge. Mm-hmm. Daniel Browning, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so and much. Same. Thank you so much. Uh, we've been talking all about seasons. It is presented by Outer Urban Projects. It's happening in the Black Box uh, from the 6th of March to the 5th of April. Uh, it was also presented as part of Melbourne Design Week. You're listening to Triple R. That's right, you are listening to Triple R in the Glass House for another Wednesday afternoon. It's a pleasure to have your company and I have my next guest joining me in studio. Uh, Ali Alizadeh's books include the historical novel The Last Days of Jean d'Arc, the short story collection Transactions, the literary memoir, uh, memoir Iran, My Grandfather, which was shortlisted for the Uh, the New South Wales Premier Literary Award and two previous poetry collections, Ashes in the Air and Eyes in the Times of War. 
Uh, Ali is a senior lecturer in literary studies at Monash and joins me this afternoon to talk all about uh, his new poetry collection called Towards the End. Uh, it's out now through Giramondo. Uh, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Great. It's great to be here. Thank you. Um, Ali, are you happy if we maybe start with a reading? Yeah, sure. Um, definitely. This is the last um, poem in the book. The book is a sort of a... I guess you might say it's a concept collection. Uh, the poems are put in a particular order and um, they kind of tell a story very vaguely, not a not a narrative with a protagonist and so on or a plot. It's not a narrative verse, but the poems are put in a way that develop an idea. And I felt like the perfect, the, the, the only conclusion to it would be um, the, the famous poem slash song from the 19th century, the great, great communist anthem. Uh, the Internationale, which or in the French l'Internationale, uh, which is um, which is written by the great uh, revolutionary communard uh, Eugène Edim Potier. It's been translated into English tons of times. It was the national anthem of the Soviet Union. But um, I was not happy with any of the existing English translations. None of them even tried to be faithful. They tried to be rousing and political, but not. Um, you know, an actual translation of the original poem. So here's, here's my attempt at it. Um, the Internationale. Rise up, condemned masses of the earth. Rise up, you prisoners of need. Listen to the volcanic rumble of truth, the truth of the eruption of the end. Let us wipe clean the slate of history. Let us rebel, wretched slaves rebel. Let us change the world in fundamentally. We are nothing now, let's be all. No supreme self-important leaders, no God, no celebrity, no politicians. Workers, let's be our own saviors and hold our own communions so that the exploiters finally expire, so that our spirit escapes from their prison. We must fan the flame of our own fire. It's time to strike the red-hot iron. Governments lie. The law is trickery. Rent and taxes bleed us in every country. The rich buy up property, hide their money, then prattle about our ethical duty. We have had more than enough of their might. Justice evokes another authority. The vote is pointless. Let's win the right to end their sanction criminality and in the hideous glorification ceos managers entrepreneurs know their prosperity's precondition is the theft of the fruits of our labors our lives become cash credit capital in this wily gangster's coffers so when we rise up let us recall their wealth should have always been ours um, do you want me to keep going it's a long part the elite spread anxiety, hatred, fear, but we will never hate each other. When they pit one group of us against another, we shall disobey, we'll come together. And if these, these devious cannibals want to provoke us and make us violent, let our anger, fists and projectiles be aimed at their own establishment. Wage earners, farmers, casuals, unemployed, we are the great association of people who must sell the labor in the world which belongs to us, not to the rich and idle.
for too long have our exhausted bodies been food to these ravenous vultures, so let us scatter them, make them disappear. Let the sun shine brilliantly forever. That's Ali Elizadeh reading from his brand new poetry collection towards the end. Um, Ali, I'm wondering if we can perhaps start at the beginning of your of your writing journey. How did you first get into poetry? Um, I think I was um, I think I was influenced by uh, grunge music of the 1990s. I really liked you know Pearl Jam and Nirvana and things like that. Uh, and then I, but I, I, you know, I probably fantasized about becoming a rock star, but I didn't have the talent or the anything else that would be required. Vanity, maybe the huge ego. Sorry, I'm the <laughs> radio station. No, rock stars are all geniuses. But I, I, anyway, I, I, and then I had a friend, and I saw them him do performance poetry, uh, and I was like, wow, that's interesting. What is that? And and you know, he told me, well, this is you know. And this is what Jim Morrison was doing, and I'm like, okay, I can I can find a sort of back door to rock stardom, perhaps, and that's that's how it began. Mm. Uh, and you've written, you know, a few poetry books. Where where does this one sit for you? What I suppose what uh, mm. what was the catalyst for this collection? Well, look, I think it's my best book. I mean, I know writers usually say that, but everything it's definitely my best book of poems. Um, in the past. I did what other poets do, which is, you know, they, they publish poems over a period in literary journals and then they, they collect them together after, like, what, 10 years or whatever, um, and, and they call that a collection. And I have done that in the past, but this time I didn't want to do that. I thought, no, I had, a, I had something that I wanted to say. And when, it looked, when I looked at my poems that are written over, the, you know, since my last collection 10 years ago, I kind of saw a real shift and a real movement beginning i guess in my uh, what was at the time a kind of a normal register of writing for me which was autobiographical and personal and all that kind of stuff and i realized that my voice was actually had changed a lot over a period and i thought well what's happened over this period and this was you know the period of the collapse of global capitalism i was I began really the poems that are here. I began writing them at around the time of the global financial crisis, 2008. We might be going through another one now, courtesy of a certain virus. We'll see what, how that pans out. But at the time, I was living in Dubai, and I just thought, wow, this is fascinating. And at that moment, I remembered that, you know, I had a really before being a sort of general kind of progressive lefty person that I was, I had actually been a communist as a child <laughs> you know, when I discovered Marx as a very precocious, very young child. And I thought, wow, this is it. This is, we might be beginning to, this might be the beginning of the end of capitalism. Um, and I should, I should, um, you know, acknowledge that in my writing. Mm. Do you, did you find that it's a, a different writing process when you're kind of writing specifically for a collection as opposed to, you know, perhaps just putting poems out for literary journals like mm. you were saying? Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, I mean, a lot of the poems in this book are also the poems that are, I've collected from uh, publishing in journals, but there's a lot of num number of poems that I wrote specifically for it to to give it a kind of the cohesion that I had in mind. Um, yeah, it is. I mean, I'm also a novelist, so you know, this is not very difficult for me to look at a. Uh, uh, sort of a, a text and see, well, there are bits that, that are kind of missing from what I want to say. Um, yeah, but I have to say it's it's been a much more interesting exercise than just putting some poems together. And I hope, I hope you know, readers 
uh, respond uh, in kind because you know i'm not i'm not imposing just my quote unquote greatest hits on them this is actually a concept here which i which i think might resonate with readers i hope anyway i mm. don't know um yeah so let's talk uh, i suppose about some of the the poems in the book there's you know a real kind of sense of unease and, and frustration with the sense of the world but also mm. feels like there is um a sense of hope and you know a sense of calling mm. for mm. a revolution mm. Mm. I, i'm interested yeah, if you can just talk to me a little bit more about what this poetry collection means to you. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I mean, definitely the sort of like um, I felt like something was ending within myself, and and that was, I guess, a kind of a naive belief in freedom and opportunity and all those sort of good things that are you know progressive capitalism or you know bourgeoisie might offer, which which you know I, I was a, I was a part of. I mean, I I grew up in this kind of society i too want to see more diversity inclusivity blah blah but then you realize all of that is predicated upon capital mm. investment and and the money that we earn from selling our labor power or from you know a, a rise in the value of property or something like that uh, now now there's no i don't have an ethical problem with it. i mean i may have an ethical problem but that's not the problem the problem is that this is not materially sustainable we know that, for example, today when I say that, people say, yes, there's an environmental problem. And of course, it is. Uh, there are environmental degradation is linked to capital, the, the demand for uh, uh, constant, you know, uh, compound growth, which is without it, capital dies. You know, capital can actually die. Money that doesn't grow becomes dead money. <laughs> you know, it has to. So, and that's the kind of the situation we're in. And I felt like in myself, I, I lost... Um, faith in the idea that we could i don't know make the system a bit more egalitarian by complaining about various oppressions frankly i don't have any faith in that at all mm. i think that humanity is going to move towards a complete um you know what marx called the expropriation of the expropriators i mean this is going to end <laughs> it may not end soon and it would not have a be very pretty ending but this can't go on you know feudalism ended too uh, you know, slavery's ended as well, and this kind of society will end too. So, and I think that's that's what I, you know, came out of my poems naturally. I mean, they began with a sort of a desire of saying, "Oh, here I am," you know, "pay me more attention," whatever, and then by the end, saying, "No, I'm not. I don't care about my particularity, my identity. All of that stuff to me is meaningless now. What matters is I'm a member of a species of humanity, and and a part of this universal family." <laughs> If you have just joined us, we are chatting to Ali Elizadeh all about his new poetry collection called Towards the End. I'm interested, you know, with, you know, keeping in mind everything you've just said, what role do you think poetry plays in, in expressing these ideas? Um, I mean, I mean, you know, I think the reason I kind of gravitated towards having uh, lent into the, the internationally at the end is, is a kind of an acknowledgement of of poetry being a participant in a, some sort of a great human transformation or revolution, if you like, but of course it can't cause it. And I, and I think you know we are at the moment of absolute sort of bourgeois fetishism, where you know creativity and self-expression are seen to be amazing things. And okay, they may feel good; they're like a, like a sort of a sedative. But they don't actually change things. In fact, they could become addictive. You know, you know, artists who become addictive to self-expression, the narcissism of that. So I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not into that. I'm, I have a day job, and I have never tried to earn a living from my art, and I'm very happy for that to be the case. Um, but, um, 
But I do think, nevertheless, that if 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 things change, well, well, so does art. It is a part mm. of it. You know, when we look at the last great cycle of revolutions, which I would go back to late 18th century, um, you know, arts, aesthetics, our perception of the world, language use, all of that changed too as part of it. It, it kind of contributed to the great sort of sociopolitical economic upheavals, but it was in turn influenced by that. So I feel like it is going to be a part of it. I don't know if um, you know, radical artists have a vanguardist position or a duty. They may, they may, but but that's that's probably best seen when there is an actual revolution, uh, uh, not not you know when um, some kind of self-important artist said, "Well, I'm going to bring enlightenment to the masses through my poetry," and that's I don't I don't buy that. Mm. Um, I'm interested. Would you like to do another reading? Oh, if you want me to, yeah, yeah sure. I'd love that. Um. Is there a content language warning for this radio station? Or, uh, it's all right. Just go are, are you sure? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> okay. I, w- I want to. Um, it's got a few F um, words in it. I want to read this one. It's called the General Will, and it sort of speaks to the um, uh, uh, some of the stuff I've read from the 18th century, the writings of Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Marquis de Sade. Uh, it's called the General Will. You know what you want. Isn't this a silk damask sofa, say, a new collotte? Not even the promotion, be honest. Enough to say, you want me writhing under the heel of your boot because your um, being demands it. Ah, fuck desire, fuck ethics, seriously, really. You don't know what you need beyond persistence and survival. A harpsichord, say? A night at the new brothel? Maybe an electric car? But will you only will to possess? To power over my bare life? Seriously, I have studied the Marquis maddened by the banality of pleasure, even whipping a whore like me could not help him ejaculate. I have been walking solitary, be honest with the universe, welcome this integration of what is you. Uh, a new selfie, say, an eco-friendly, handcrafted, bespoke, innovative mirror? Do you see anything other than human-shaped shit? Let's go. This way, it's a lovely day for losing oneself. Walk with us. There is so much more to see. That is Ali Elizadeh uh, reading from Towards the End. Um, Ali, it's, uh, yeah, we're quickly running out of time. Um, what's it like to, to, I suppose, have this collection out, out into the world now? Oh, it's wonderful. I mean, uh, you know, I, I feel validated as a poet because I, I do a lot of other things, you know, write fiction, philosophy and that. So and it's, it's really good to have a foot in the poetic universe. Uh, but, but I do hope that this is a sort of a genuine contribution. And in a few hundred years' time, when historians look back at the great revolutions that toppled capitalism, they will look at this book as a contributor 
<laughs> I love that. I hope so. Um, Ali, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. I really appreciate it. Great. Thanks for having me. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.